The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What I would suggest is this. The Judaizers have exalted the Torah because of the fact that angels were involved in the giving of the law and because of the character of the mediator Moses. I mean, you know, let's pay attention to this. But Paul argues that this very characteristic of the law speaks against it. In that case, verse 20 explains in what way the last statement of verse 19 makes the law subordinate to the promise. Namely, that the mediator with whom, of whom we're talking about here is not the mediator of the one God, but is the mediator of myriads of angels. I don't know if that makes much sense here. Uh, if the angels are not totally out of view in verse 20, then uh, the, the Paul's point is that, true, you have the mediator Moses, but what is he mediating? Not God directly, but the angels who are here in the middle uh, giving the law. So the very thing that the Judaizers may have used as part of their argument to exalt the law, Paul says, uh, should tell you something about the subordinate character of the law. Uh, the next thing is that the law was temporary. Uh, in 19C, uh, uh, until the law to whom it was promised should come. That's clearly a temporal clause. Now, without a doubt, the sperma of verse 19 has the same reference as the pistis of verses 23 to 25. Because in 19 it says, until the seed should come. But then in 23 to 25, he talks about when faith came, then everything you know, came to its fruition. So clearly, sperma and pistis have the same referent. In all three occasions, uh, it is linked with the verb erkomai. But it would be unsatisfactory simply to equate these nouns with Christ as the object of faith. I think I don't, there's nothing wrong with, with thinking of faith in verses 23 to 25 as, as the object of faith and therefore Christ. But if that's all you say, I think you fail to appreciate the rather remarkable character of Paul's language. And I say a little bit about that you know, when I deal with that passage in, the, in terms of the eschatology of Galatians. Um, because the way that Paul puts it makes it sound as though there was no faith before Christ. And obviously he cannot mean that because he just told us in verse 6 that, that Abraham believed. And he becomes a pattern, more than a pattern, uh, for faith. But, uh, you see, that doesn't take away from the boldness of the statement. The language alerts us, and I think in a dramatic way, uh, to something that ought to be obvious anyway, namely that his statement is informed by redemptive historical categories, not subjective experiential ones. He's not denying that people would have experienced faith prior to Christ. In fact, the absoluteness of the language, there was no faith before Christ and no law after Christ, 
because after Christ, faith comes, we're no longer under a pedagogue. That only makes sense if it is regarded, if the statement is regarded as exclusively a redemptive historical statement. So the nation of Israel has to do with those who are under the law, and the law was supposed to lead them to reception of Christ. Now that Christ has come, the law is set aside. All of that is redemptive history, you see. Uh, if we were to address ourselves to the experiential aspect, we would have to recognize that people did believe there was faith before Christ came, and that there is still law today, that there is a sense in which the law is still active. It continues to serve as a pedagogos, experientially and subjectively for people. You know, and, and in that sense, the Puritans were not wrong to, to stress you know, the need to bring law uh, into, the, uh, into the preaching of the gospel. Uh, because what may have changed in terms of the redemptive, historical, objective accomplishment of redemption based itself out subjectively uh, in, in the lives of individuals. And finally, the law had a well-defined purpose. That is the uh, statement in, in 19b, ton parabasion charin prosetethe. It was added literally for the sake of, for the sake of transgressions. And I think the idea is, uh, is expanded in verses 21 to 22. Now what in the world does this mean? Charin um, most frequently has a telic function for the purpose of. What sense does that make? It seems very strange to describe the law as given in order to you know, for the benefit of sin, for the benefit of transgression. And that is why people are tempted to translate, not for the purpose of, but because of transgressions. And then you view the law here in its function of restraining sin. The law was added to restrain transgressions. But I think that's not going to work. The context, which I think uh, explains and expands on verse 19, says nothing about the restraining function of the law. Nowhere. The so-called first use of the law. Now, you would have to take the, the figure of Padagogos strictly in that sense, you know. The, the uh, attendant, the slave attendant to the child who's keeping the child from doing something wrong, but, but that's not explicit. Further, the context expresses a different notion. Verse 21, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, whatever that means. Further, the notion that transgressions were the cause why the law was given seems not quite in keeping with the way in which Paul formulates that in Romans 4.15, uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So you see, if you say that the law was given because there was transgression, uh, that just doesn't fit with Paul's formulation, that where there's no law, there's no transgression to begin with. I think that the best commentary on our passage is Romans 5.20, Namas de pareseilthen, who was brought in sideways, if you will, hina pleonase to paraptoma, so that the transgression might increase, so that it might increase. Um, I think a good parallel to the use of current here is 1 Timothy 5.14, where young widows are, are, are instructed to marry, to give the enemy no occasion for reproach, Loidoria's Karin, 
Uh, it's not for the sake of, in the usual sense, for the, for the benefit of, but it still shows you how it leads to something, you see. So it might lead to, again, you might take a look at Jude, uh, verse 16, uh, those who are trying to flatter people for the sake of gaining advantage. Anyway, um, the way this whole thing is expanded in verses 21 22 is helpful here. Uh, you have uh, two implied negatives that the law was not given uh, to give life, and also that out of the law you do not get righteousness. <clears throat> uh, so these clauses appear to be the explanation for the megenoita. You know, is the law contrary to the promises megenoita? And uh, you can see why I find it difficult to take verse 12 as a reference to the law, pure and simple. In that verse, law is indeed set up <coughs> in antithesis to faith, as though we had two different and competing principles of salvation. But if there is no such competition, then verse 12 is talking about something else. Well, you, what I did with, with Galatians 3.21 in, in that chapter, I, I think, is enough uh, for the time being here. Let me just say that um, that clause that the scripture shut up everything under sin <coughs> is one of the most significant ones. It, uh, that's really a rich and uh, it's, it's an awesome concept really when you think about it. The idea is even clearer in Romans 11.32 that God has shut up everyone into disobedience. <laughs> so that he might have mercy on all. Uh, Mary has a wonderful statement here. It is so ordered in the judgment of God that all are effectively enclosed in the fold of the disobedient and so hemmed in to disobedience that there is no escape from this servitude except as the mercy of God gives release. And the profundity expressed by those words is what leads to the doxology there at the end of Romans 11. And I really think that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, the law was given to lead to sin in a sense, to increase sin, and thus to shut up people, to enclose them in such a way that they would see that there's no escape from it except by God's mercy. In any case, uh, we have here an indication of the redemptive historical concern, namely the working out of God's eternal saving purposes. Uh, the point is that the law condemns, it curses, that uh, the mosaic economy is a ministry of death, the letter must kill before the spirit can make alive. And um, there are a couple more things that I want to say, as you can see from, um, from the outline, particularly the Pythagoras idea and how Romans uh, fits into the whole picture. We'll do that next uh, Tuesday. Uh, and what I want to do as I begin, I will finish that uh, next Tuesday. And um, at that point, if you have any questions on chapter 6, particularly the, uh, the survey of the eschatology of Galatians, that would be the best way to bring them up. And then um, we'll have at least a full hour and a half to cover the last three chapters of Galatians. We were all the way down to um, this soteriologically preparatory. Um, and had covered most of that as well, as I recall. But I... Um, wanted to say a couple of things specifically about the term pedagogos and um, a few comments about the connection between this passage and some of the material we have in the Epistle of the Romans. 
Yeah, let, let's just go straight to the matter of uh, the meaning of Pythagoras, which um, has um, become the focus of a certain amount of discussion. You remember that as a result of the King James, uh, which says what schoolmasters I recall, the tendency has been to think of the Pythagoras specifically in the pedagogical sense. That's where we get the word pedagogy. And um, to look at the law, at least in the context of what Paul is saying here, as an instructive uh, instrument, instrument of instruction, which leads people to Christ. And um, if you think of it in, in those terms, it appears to be primarily a subjective kind of thing. You know, individuals, as they are faced with the law, are taught to look for Christ, or in some sense or another. Of course, um, the uh, translation schoolmaster, in any case, is not a particularly good one. And people are well aware of the fact that the term really has to do with um, the function of uh, certain slaves who were hired specifically to oversee the training and education of the children in the household. Now, a number of articles have been written on this matter, and um, one of them in particular uh, you might be interested in, in looking at, uh, Norman Young, Norman Young, an article entitled Pedagogos, The Social Setting of a Pauline Metaphor. And I'm sure that uh, Longenecker gives that, uh, the bibliography to you, but it's in Novum Testamentum, 1987, pages 150 to 76. And um, he also published an article in the Biblical Archaeological Review, as I recall, maybe just a few years ago, that is briefer and has pictures and lots of nice quotations from uh, people in the past, I mean, in, in antiquity. And it's really quite fascinating because you find individuals reflecting on their experiences with their paragogos, and some of them positive, some of them negative, and the question becomes, you know, is, is Paul thinking of this function in a negative or a positive way? I think it may be a mistake to try to pin the whole significance of what Paul is saying on the precise function of, of a paragogos, um, some scholars have really emphasized, Ritterboss, for example, as I recall, really emphasizes the negative element. You know, the Pythagogos was seen as a stern, um, well, what, it's like, almost like a parole officer kind of thing, you know. He's really after you and takes you to school or whatever and uh, disciplines you. And uh, you sort of look forward to being relieved of that pressure. Others look at comments from people who had obviously developed deep emotional attachment to their pedagogos as somebody who had cared for them and, and so on. And I don't know that you can you know, come to any clear conclusions about that. Uh, what is, I think, indisputable is that while the pedagogos uh, may have had and would have had some uh, uh, instructional responsibilities particularly in the early ages of the child, 
he was certainly viewed as someone to exercise discipline. And uh, there was a restraining function involved and uh, a, uh, you know, just what, whatever is involved in disciplining an individual. It seems to me that a number of scholars who have tried to downplay the, uh, the negative associations of the term <clears throat> are not sufficiently sensitive to a couple of the details in the context. I'm thinking particularly of you know, our discussion about that verb, suneklesen. That is, that is a strong verb, you know, to shut up. Uh, there is this uh, notion of condemnation, I think, involved in it. Uh, it's present in verse 22, I think a little more clearly in verse 23, and clearest of all in verse 24. What I'm thinking about is um, the, um, the law became our pedagogos unto Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But when, the, uh, uh, when faith comes, we're no longer under a uh, pedagogos, uh, etc., Norman Young himself, whom I happen to know because he was studying in Manchester when I was there as well, he's an Australian uh, scholar, uh, makes this comment, it would be entirely erroneous to see in Paul's usage a reference to the so-called second use of the law, whereby the individual is so oppressed by law that he flees to Christ for release. And interestingly, he, he himself uh, points out that the pedagogues were well known for their corporeal punishment but he thinks that the context here is against the idea. Um, he, he puts the emphasis not only on the confining and restricting function of the law, but also the chronological element. And uh, there are a number of other people who have pointed that out. A, a pedagogue is, is, is viewed as an individual who is supervising the child for a well-defined period of time. Well, undoubtedly, that is part of the idea. But uh, to deny that there is an element of preparation involved in the function of the law, uh, viewed as a, as a pedagogos, uh, doesn't seem to me very smart to try to deny that. <clears throat> the, the pedagogue's control over the child has its, as its purpose the eventual independence of the child. And then that idea is elaborated in chapter 4, uh, where even though the word pedagogos is not used, you have these other terms of people supervising uh, the child and so on, it's, uh, and, and you're looking forward to being released from it. Now the last element, uh, trying to look at the Epistle to the Romans in comparison with this passage, uh, the reason why I think we need to do that is that in Galatians, Paul does not tell us, at least not explicitly, how the law accomplishes this purpose of leading to Christ, whatever, whatever that means. You see, someone like Norman Young and a few others would argue that it's not a matter of leading to Christ, that the ace Christon should be viewed purely in a temporal sense. Uh, the law is our, is our pedagogue until Christ, that's all. I'm suggesting there's more to it than that, that it is a, a nomus ace Christon, uh, and so the notion of preparation cannot be totally um, dismissed. But how does that happen? Well, Paul doesn't tell us in Galatians, but in Romans we do get some more explicit kinds of um, data. 
For example, in chapter 3 of Romans 19 to 20, uh, when Paul says that every mouth will be shut uh, before, before God, there's no excuse, uh, he goes on to say, uh, for through the law is the knowledge of sin. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. And you see, in traditional Reformed theology, and particularly in the Puritan uh, tradition, when uh, a lot of emphasis is placed on the law as the uh, means whereby the reality of sin is brought home to us, um, this is a biblical concept. It's as simple as that. I mean, we, we can try to nuance uh, uh, the idea and then argue about exactly how much you can uh, do with that or shouldn't do with it and how it, uh, uh, how it is relevant to our present setting. I'm not denying that there are many matters that call for debate, but to suggest that um, there's something inherently unbiblical about, uh, you know, in terms of biblical theology, about the law uh, being the source for a knowledge of sin that, that in turn plays a function in the accomplishment of, of uh, and, and application of redemption, if you will. Uh, there's no need to deny that. It is interesting, <coughs> by the way, that there in Romans 3, Paul says, dia nomu epignosis amartias, the, uh, through the law is the knowledge of sin. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. The dia is, uh, is striking. Why should the fact, why should the fact that the law reveals sin make the law ineffectual? Have you thought about that for, for a while? Uh, the, the whole sentence, you remember, is because through the works of the law, no flesh will be justified before him. For through the law is the knowledge of sin. All right, so we get knowledge of sin through the law. Why should that fact prove the agar that the law is ineffectual? I don't think it is adequate to say that, well, the, that the answer to that is that you have to supply only, uh, for through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. Maybe that's part of what Paul has in mind, but I don't think it's simply the, the insufficiency of the law that, uh, that is in view here. The clause itself gives us the actual reason. What the law does is almost by, by definition evidence of what it cannot do. The law convicts of sin, but does not relieve people of sin. If anything, the law provides experience with sin. You know, the epignosis amartias, Ritterboss uh, points out that you shouldn't read that purely as a noetic thing you know, uh, intellectual. And, um, I mean, I myself wouldn't want to uh, lean heavily on the fact that it is a pignosis rather than just gnosis. But uh, on other grounds, uh, Paul is not simply talking about, you know, you know the way that normally we look at this. You've heard the story of the uh, old lady uh, in the church who um, was getting a little bit concerned about the Ten Commandments being read Sunday after Sunday. And as she left the church, she told the pastor one day, you know, pastor, you ought to stop doing that. You keep putting ideas into people's heads. Um, and um, the notion that the, uh, the law informs us, instructs us about the reality of sin. If, if you think the epignosis, that's all it's talking about, I don't think you're really taking to heart what's going on. This lady had perhaps a better idea. Uh, the, the presence of the law 
has, you know, it creates an awareness. And with the awareness, there is that experience of sin involved. And that's what Ritterboss's point is, epignosis, you know, experiential, experiential knowledge, as is so frequently the case in the biblical material. You see what I'm saying? The law does exactly the opposite of justifying. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit, but not by much. It does the opposite of justification so that we may seek justification elsewhere. And that way of looking at things is confirmed, of course, uh, by chapter 5, verse 20, which is the one passage that is unequivocal. I mean, the others, like Galatians 3.19 and, and uh, even this one in, in uh, Romans 3.20, uh, perhaps there's a slight ambiguity, but uh, Romans 5.20 so that the transgression might increase. You just can't get around that. Just can't get around that uh, clause. It, it's uh, unequivocal. The passage is analogous to Galatians 3 in that, uh, see, the, the preceding passage in Romans 5, verses 15 to 19, when you look at that, you get the impression that the, rend that the law is being rendered purposeless. And, and it's interesting, when you look at the commentaries on, on Romans 5.20, uh, commentators are not really helpful in helping us see the, um, how, how verse 20 relates to the train of thought of the whole paragraph. But I think there is an interesting analogy with Galatians 3, where also the, the question, well, why then the law, you know? That also, I think, is part of what's taking place in the latter part of chapter 5 of Romans. There's an echo here of what had been said in verse 13, uh, when um, uh, Paul said, for, um, for now, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not uh, counted when there is no law. Um, there's some connection between the presence of law and at least the, the recognition or the um, um, uh, appreciation for what sin is. The presence of law and, and the uh, presence of sin. There's some connection there. And um, the connection is expressed in terms of this notion of the law making, uh, uh, multiplying sin. Reading this passage in Romans 5, 20 and 21... <clears throat> therefore uh, sin reigned uh, as sin reigned so also uh, grace will reign through righteousness all of that section is focusing on the redemptive historical perspective but that gives way to the subjective experiential in chapter 7 at least in my opinion there's a lot of debate about what Romans 7 is saying anyway but um, to the degree or to the extent that um, Paul's use of the I, I did and I did, uh, to the extent that it reflects any kind of personal element. And, and I, I hope that even people who want to see more there, want to see Israel, want to see uh, some more general kind of uh, reference, I hope that even if, if you move in that direction, you don't fall into the trap of thinking that there, it, therefore it cannot be Paul. In other words, it's not that kind of an antithesis. Uh, undoubtedly, Paul is thinking not of himself purely, but whatever he's saying probably has something to do with him. 
and um, the clause in chapter 7 verse 13 um, is probably the, the clearest um, element in what I'm saying well you know the whole of uh, verse 13 what was good became death for me the law is not bad the law is not sin it is good but it manifested itself in my life <clears throat> as, as something which is deadly oh no not exactly but rather sin so that it might prove itself to be sin um, created the situation <coughs> and then this is the clause that I was referring to so that sin might become exceedingly sinful through the commandment sin becomes exceedingly sinful through the commandment I really believe that is more of the subjective experiential focus um, correlating to the redemptive historical focus of uh, chapter 5. And I think the Galatians 3 is redemptive historical. Uh, so I would argue that verse 25, uh, where uh, Paul makes that you know, very uh, bold statement, now that faith has come, we are no longer under this paragogos, under the law. Is the law eliminated? Well, redemptive historically, Israel is no longer under law because the law has completed its work. It was temporary. Uh, you know, that, that covenant was given for a period and it prepared the way for the coming of faith in Christ. Now, according to my, uh, and by the way, let me just point out what I hope is obvious to you. I have just done something that a number of scholars think um, you cannot do. You know, you, you take Galatians by itself and don't try to read Romans into Galatians. Why? Because the Galatians didn't have the benefit of Romans. Um, well, there's some truth to that. And if in trying to correlate the two letters we appear to be flattening the distinctiveness of each letter uh, then that's very bad indeed but um, as you can gather from some of the stuff uh, you've read I, um, I find it quite silly to tell you the truth to suggest that uh, there's something inherently um, improper about what in effect amounts to asking an author you know what he meant that's that's really what you're doing now it's true if um, you know if somebody asked me what I meant when I wrote an article five or ten years ago um, you know it's impossible for me to respond to that question without having been affected by the years that, that uh, have transpired since and uh, you could argue with some possibility that I might not be able to give you the right answer. I mean, the really precise answer. Uh, maybe I don't remember exactly how I was thinking or, or what led me to say that. Uh, or even if I do, maybe I am now restating it, uh, you know, given uh, whatever other thoughts have crossed my mind since. And one has to be aware of that, but does that mean, therefore, that it's bad to ask me what I meant. 
Of course not. Um, and one has to do this thing cautiously. But Romans, especially if um, we place Romans within the same general period in which Paul wrote Galatians, as I do, but even if you put it earlier, um, and even if you say, well, but you know, Paul's thought advanced and he's thinking about some other things, even then there is some good reason to, uh, to look at Galatians within the framework of everything that Paul has said. And uh, assuming, and I think most New Testament scholars, even non-evangelicals, would be disposed to say, you know, let's not, let's not assume that Paul blatantly is contradicting himself from one letter to another. There must be some kind of coherence here, uh, much more so if, um, if, if we come to, to these uh, letters believing in the unity of Scripture. Anyway, right, well, that's, that's what I was referring to, that we have that problem. Or, didn't I talk about that? Or am I I'm a little confused because I uh, talked about some of these things when I was at Bison. I thought I had mentioned something about that problem, that you have, uh, on the one hand, um, by, by saying, I'm almost sure I remember writing this on the board, hey, entole, eis, so ain, and I was saying, there's got to be some difference between saying hey into lay hey a zoein on the one hand and hey hanamos zoopoyel and I, I was suggesting that the, the verb zoopoyel must in Paul's thought involve something beyond the best that I can do with that is this Paul recognizes that the statement in Leviticus 18:5 within its context is is indeed intended. Uh, to lead God's people in the way of life. And he's not denying it. And he's acknowledging that truth when he makes that statement, but for the law to give life, that is a function that he sees is part of the, um, of the work of the Spirit and precisely where the law fails. I was hoping that you were going to ask the easier question. Uh, where does he get the idea that uh, it is not the law but the spirit that gives life? And then I would have talked Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, you know, which, which suggests, more than suggests, I think it, it's quite uh, directly telling you that the old covenant, the law, could not do something which now can only be done if God gives of his spirit. All right? And maybe that is the answer to your question. I mean, maybe uh, Paul sees the significance of the New Covenant promise as uh, leaving one with the only alternative is to recognize that the law has had a different uh, function. But uh, I, I know what you're asking. And um, no, I don't think that there's anything explicit in the Old Testament um, in, in that respect. And um, it'd be nice if, if Paul might have you know, given us a little bit of uh, greater information about how he, is this something he has pulled together on the basis of reflection of the Old Testament, or is it rather an inference drawn in the light of the coming of Christ? And, and now looking back at what's happened, uh, that's, that's really the only possible conclusion you can come up with. I, I don't know, for sure. Okay, let's move on to uh, the next section, the conclusion. And uh, I must have been listening to uh, Brahms' symphonies or something when I was uh, here because you see that um, 
there's a recapitulation and then a coda um, in Paul's um, discussion. My reason for for using that language <clears throat> does have a certain textual rationale. You remember that back in verse 7, Paul had talked about who are the true huioi of Abraham. Now here, in chapter 3, verse 26, he reintroduces the term huioi. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And... Um, that's partly what I mean by recapitulation, that, that he's picking up on a theme that had been brought in at the beginning, and now it is recaptured. I say this recapitulation is verses 26 to 29, uh, and, and you notice here that there's a repetition of several pro uh, propositions, not just a matter of true sonship, um, but the notion that this sonship, even though it is Abrahamic, is also through faith in Jesus. It makes us heirs according to the promise. All of those things, true sonship, Abraham, faith in Jesus, is based back, back in verse, verse 14, the notion, of, the notion of being made heirs, verse 18, the promise, verse 14. Um, you see Paul bringing all that together into uh, some rather powerful concluding statements. But of course, a, a, a good composer, when it comes to the recapitulation, uh, knows how to even introduce a new theme uh, when you least expect it. And uh, the new themes in this paragraph are, number one, that the true sonship, which is Abrahamic sonship, is also divine sonship. Huiori theueste. This is, you think about it, this is really a rather dramatic way to open the conclusion. It is what suggests that they are no longer uh, paides under the paedagogos, you see, but true full sons. Secondly, this sonship transcends all differences and emphasizes the oneness of those who are in Christ. Verse 28. Now, the basic distinction that Paul is concerned about is of, is, of course, the ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. And you might have said, well, why not just stop at that? You know, it isn't just Jews who are maybe children of God, but also the Gentiles. Fine, but he doesn't stop there. And so he, he tries to help us realize that the work of God affects the way in which we look at, at, the, at the whole world, basically. So... We're talking about these new themes. One, true sonship is divine sonship. Secondly, it is a sonship that transcends all differences and emphasizing the unity of God's people. And, but third and most important, the faith in view is a faith that brings us into union with Christ. Union with Christ. There is an interesting progression of ideas in this pa paragraph from 26 to 29. Uh, there you have, first of all, pistios Jesu Christu, faith in faith of Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ. Then we have piste in Christo Jesu. Then the phrase eis Christon e baptisteite, you were baptized into Christ. And then finally, no, and then Christon uh, and educeste, you put on Christ. And then finally, uh, with this ring affirmation, 
you are one in Christ. Eis este en Cristo Jesu. And if that, as, though, as though that were not enough, you have the specific statement in verse 29, uh, e de Christu, if you are of Christ. So there are about five different ways in which Paul expresses the idea of this very special relationship that we have with Christ. Now, I don't think we need to press some sort of gradation, you know. Uh, that, that's not the main point that I'm after here, but uh, the need, I think, to recognize the significance of the concept that Paul is bringing to bear at this point. Uh, it's a concept that um, I think with little question provides a theological fundamentum uh, which gives coherence to uh, Paul's soteriology and therefore renders it defensible. You, you, we begin to see more clearly, for instance, why Paul had spoken of Christ as the seed in verse 16. <coughs> you see, we are Abraham's seed, but only insofar as we enjoy solidarity with the seed, who is Christ. And um, the, the general idea is, is developed uh, quite dramatically, I think, in other passages. In 1 Corinthians 15, in connection with the solidarity that we have with Christ in the resurrection, in Romans 5, 12 to 20, in chapter 6 through 8, um, union with Christ becoming a, uh, just a, uh, an overwhelming uh, notion in, in trying to get a handle on, on who we are because of faith. I might uh, comment on the fact that um, um, the ebaptistate, you were baptized into Christ, um, to my mind, it's rather obvious, although there's a lot of debate on this, but, but it seems obvious to me that the rite of baptism is indeed in view here. Uh, but it would be a mistake to focus on the outward manifestation. Uh, what Paul is interested in is certainly that which the rite represents, specifically the baptism of the Spirit, because it is the Spirit who effects union with Christ. <clears throat> so don't be so afraid of uh, you know, baptismal regeneration or, or that sort of thing that that you end up denying that there's any reference here to baptism at all. Uh, people tend to say, well, obviously he's speaking about spirit baptism. Well, of course he's speaking about spirit baptism. But that doesn't mean that uh, the actual uh, sacrament of baptism it has no bearing whatever in what he's saying. He's assuming that these people are baptized and, uh, and that therefore it represents uh, who they are in union with Christ. This notion is not exclusively forensic. There's an ethical aspect lurking in the background, and that's clear from uh, Paul's development of, um, of the notion of being baptized in Christ in Romans 6, and also from his use of the word in induces that to put on Christ uh, clearly indicates, uh, you know, something about one's behavior. That's really what, uh, what is in view. The figure of clothing, uh, which is barely touched on in, in a passage like 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, um, <clears throat> Nevertheless, you do have it uh, extended elsewhere. Um, the specific terminology, only one other place, namely Romans 13, 14. A particularly um, interesting parallel because it seems to be the basis on which we may put on tahopla, uh, to photos, the, um, 
uh, armaments of light. But then the figure is further developed in Ephesians and Colossians, where we also have a possible contrast between the past, you know, you, um, you have put on the new man as opposed to the old man, and um, uh, the past on the one hand and the imperative. Um, might take a look at Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, uh, then Colossians 3.12. What I'm really getting at here is that what is in view primarily with the figure of putting on Christ is what Murray calls definitive sanctification. Uh, definitive sanctification is a doctrine inseparable from justification both because of its forensic character, well, because of its forensic character on the one hand, and it is in inseparable from progressive sanctification by virtue of its ethical character. So both the forensic and the ethical are reflected in the notion of definitive sanctification. This is um, one of the most innovative and I think brilliant um, um, elements in, in John Murray's discussion. <coughs> I was very fortunate when I came here as a student in 66. It was his last semester and I took his course on definitive sanctification. And I was um, uh, impressed by what he was doing with this doctrine. Uh, at that point, he, um, he gave his interpretation of 1 John 3 about uh, he who is born of God cannot sin, and uh, viewed that also within this context of definitive sanctification. At that time, I thought uh, that was a little forced, to put it mildly. But um, the more I thought about it, uh, the more impressed I, I became. And, and um, you know, uh, he convinced me uh, after he died somehow. Uh, but um, you know what we're getting at here? You, you, you think of justification as, as a forensic category, sanctification as, a, as an ethical category. And when you have statements like dying to Christ and, and those kinds of things, uh, well, it's obviously sanctification. And uh, you know, most people like terms like um, the, the difference between progressive sanctification or uh, progressive sanctification, what's actually taking place, and, and then potential sanctification. You know, you have died to sin, that's the potential. And I've always disliked this potential business because it sounds like not really, you know. And, uh, and to think not really in the context of the kind of language that Paul uses about the experience of the believer. And um, I think maybe in some respects that's what Mary was trying to deal with. And um, he, he picked up, you may recall if you've read his comments on Romans 5, uh, that statement at the end of chapter 5 where um, many have been made righteous. And, and Mary prefers the uh, translation, many have been constituted righteous. And the, you, you can see that he was struggling with the fact that that is, that is not just a, a forensic category, but neither do you want to go into the Roman Catholic notion of infused justification. And, um, and if, if you look at the doctrine of definitive sanctification as partaking of both the forensic element, but because it is a real work, which really does affect you know, our, who we are and, and how we respond, uh, it is that initial definitive act of sanctification that makes the rest of sanctification possible, and therefore that ethical element uh, is very much part of it. And um, 
it's I think a very very important contribution to to one's understanding of what goes on, and, and uh, it's unfortunate that most people really haven't picked up on that. Anyway, when you get to verse 29, uh, if you are of Christ, therefore you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. You know, you really ought to sit and think about that and reflect on it and appreciate what a, a marvelous, marvelous conclusion it is to what Paul has been said uh, up to now. Uh, Ellicott, in his commentary, I think puts it quite beautifully. He says, the declaration of verse 7, those who are of faith are the sons of, of Abraham. The declaration of verse 7 is now at length substantiated and expanded by 22 verses of the deepest, most varied, and most comprehensive reasoning that exists in the whole compass of the great apostles' writings. And, and boy, how, how he, he hits that final concluding uh, uh, statement. Uh, he has proven the point of verse 7. That's what Ellicott is, is saying. <clears throat> but we still have the coda to go. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is, uh, in effect, uh, uh, we're ready now to get to the finale. And uh, it is presented in the form of an illustration. It is really, I think, the, the same theme that was described in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 3. But now it is reworked in a different key and brought home to the readers. A look at the illustration itself. We don't have time to worry about all the exact legal situation. There's been so much debate about that, and I think a lot of wasted energy, because I don't think uh, that whole question is a Jewish law or Roman law, and nothing seems to fit exactly. But I don't really think that affects the clarity of the illustration. The thing to note is that on the one hand, Paul recognizes something of the privilege of the Israelite nation. Kleronamas kurios panton own. In other words, in describing the child as being an heir and therefore as being lord of everything. That's a way of, of acknowledging that the Israel, and I think you have to think here in, in uh, redemptive historical terms, Israel was a child, but it was a privileged child. On the other hand, uh, the main point of the illustration is that it refers to an immature child, a napios. And the napios is hupa someone, is under someone, is, is subject to somebody else. <coughs> and therefore, to put it quite pointedly, he says, uden diafere dulu. He differs from a slave uh, in nothing. Now that seems like an exaggeration. In fact, you would say that's quite groundless. What about the relationship between a father and a child? What about the love? How can, how can you say that uh, a child differs not at all from a slave. But of course, you know, Paul, as well as any writer worth his salt, often uses absolute language when the context defines the focus of the statement. And here the focus is kleronomia, inheritance. In other words, in the very practical matter of the handing of the inheritance, there is no difference whatever between the child and the slave. And the child has to wait for the sovereign disposition of the father on the appointed day. Now that's the illustration. But what is the truth that Paul is seeking to illustrate? Well, um, 
I think it's very obvious from verse 5 that the Israelites are still primarily in view. They are Hupanaman. However, in verse 3, Paul introduces a new term. Here's a new factor in, in the equation. And this new term is going to allow him to extend the reference to Gentiles as well. I'm referring to Tais Toicheia to Cosmo, the elements of the world. Um, you know, Lightfoot uh, has understood the phrase in a way that, that many people have uh, agreed on. Uh, the way he puts it is that the higher element in heathen religion corresponds, though imperfectly, to the lower element in the Mosaic law. So, you know, here the heathen, and uh, there are all these horrible things, but there are certain higher elements, uh, even in the heathen religion, and you can make a connection between that and the lower element of Israelite religion. Uh, the element that I'm talking about here is ritualism. Spiritually, there's no comparison, Lightfoot would argue, but in terms of ritual and ceremony, you can see this kind of overlap. In view of the connection between verses 9 and 10, later on, I think Lightfoot's approach is generally correct, but uh, you know you would want to phrase it differently because the way that Lightfoot handles it, you almost get this notion of some kind of uh, you know the light of nature or some sort of common ground or whatever, and, and we would want to nuance that obviously. But even apart from that, uh, there is something in my bones that doesn't let me be totally satisfied with it. Uh, first, because the term "sohei," as you probably know, is well established as uh, being used with reference to spiritual beings. Secondly, the same expression is found in Colossians 2.20, right after Paul has spoken about Threskeia Torangelon, the worship of angels, whatever that means. Thirdly, Galatians is full of references to angels. Full, well, you know, in this short six-chapter book, you have you know, chapter 1, verse 8, if we are an angel from heaven, should this or the other. Chapter 3, 19, the law given by angels. Chapter 4, verse 14, you receive me as an angel. Why this preoccupation with angels? And to talk about Taishkotea to Cosmo makes me wonder whether perhaps it isn't just some elementary things about um, ritualism or whatever, but, but something else might be going on here. If, if spiritual beings are somehow in the background, then the point of contact between Judaism and, and the Gentiles is clear without necessarily trying to identify the two sets of spiritual creatures as being the same. The point would be that what Paul is saying is, look, even the law was given by angels. Angelic beings had a function, spiritual beings of some sort. In, in the heathenism, you have you know, beings, um, probably demonic being, beings involved, but there is that element that, uh, that allows him to make the connection between Taistochea at the beginning of the chapter and then the term later in verses 8 and 9. Well, let me just very briefly deal with the finale in verses 6 and 7. Uh, I think it's worth noting that um, these verses, wonderful as they are, if you think about it, they present nothing new in substance. And yet the theme is applied so brilliantly to the experience of the, of the Galatians that you almost get the impression that something new is being said here. Um, but uh, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son to your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
but if a, and if a son, also an heir through God. Um, I would call your attention, I'm going to spend a time on this, but, but uh, in the outline that I gave you, I put in uh, parallel columns passages. What I did, I took Romans 8, 14 through 7 and gave you that passage in sequence. And then taking phrases from Galatians that reflect their clear verbal parallels to Romans. And uh, if, if you spend 10 or 15 minutes just uh, thinking about that, um, it, it's very difficult to avoid the conclusion that there's a pretty strong connection between Romans and Galatians. And uh, this is probably overdoing it. But I would not be surprised if somebody told me that when Paul was writing the Epistle to the Romans, he had his carbon copy of Galatians in front of him and, uh, and doing something with it. Either that or he had kept the electronic uh, file and uh, was uh, copying and moving here and there. Well, um, let's stop here, take a break, and uh, if you have some questions on, on this material, we'll, I'll take them, and then we still have 55 minutes for chapters 4 through 6. Okay. Uh, it, it's not a great loss that we're not able to go through the rest of, uh, of Galatians with the same detail. And... Um, you can, on your own, I think, uh, try to pick up on some of the, uh, the themes and develop them. <clears throat> and so what I uh, intend to do is to uh, just go through the rest of the material you know, very quickly, uh, superficially, pointing out just a couple of things here and there. I, I have a particular reason for using this heading of appeals. Uh, and the main one is to emphasize that the material that begins here in verse 8, assumes that the, that the argument has already been concluded in all basic aspects. What, uh, what you have beginning with verse 8 <coughs> is not, all right, I, I need uh, several other things to make my point or to complete the argument. No, the argument is basically completed. But there is, there is the uh, remaining need to, well, persuasion, if you will, First of all, the uh, appeal to the Galatians' experience. Uh, there's some discussion of their previous, that is their pre-conversion uh, life. Uh, verses 8 to 11, that, that's something of a, of a bridge to the more personal section. But I think it would be a mistake not to appreciate that uh, it follows upon a rather climactic statement in verse 7. And the point of the paragraph, that is beginning with, with verse 8, the point, I think, is the frightening incongruity that the Galatians, who are no longer children but have tasted the coming age, should now be going back to slavery. The contrast is made most striking by the concept of knowing God. Before you didn't, now you do. So how can you even consider returning to your old ways, which is what you're doing? And, and you see the point of Lightfoot's earlier comment when Paul says you're going back to these things. The idea is that the ritualism of Judaism correlates with the ceremonialism of heathenism in some sense. <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm speak, um, skipping a few things here. Uh, in verses 12 to 16, he focuses then uh, on uh, the early relationship that he had with the Galatians. Uh, 
um, the first verse of verse 11, where he says, I fear for you that my work might be in vain, uh, seems to lead irresistibly to the ego of verse 12, uh, become as I am, even as I became as, as you. It's a difficult passage. Uh, it's obscured by, you know, there seem to be allusions to events that the Galatians would, would have been quite familiar with, but we have no idea what was going on. And so it's difficult for us to try to make the connections. What is the referent of, of the clause at the end of verse 12? You have done me no wrong. Where did that come from? I mean, what, what's, what's that doing there? How does verse 13 follow logically from what has been said in verse 12? What is the asthenia, the weakness of the flesh, in verse 14? How did it cause Paul's preaching? In what way uh, was that uh, a temptation or a trial? How does, uh, look at verse 15b, uh, that speaks about um, you would have given your eyes. How in the world does that relate to the first part of the verse? See, all of Paul's comments in this section are abbreviated, they're very emotional. In any case, I think we should note that the passage suggests, I think rather strongly, that there must have been some communication between Paul and the Galatians after the Judaizing danger had made itself felt. I think that verse 16 can only be interpreted that way. You know, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I think some people want to read that as Paul anticipating what's going to happen when they get the letter. And he is trying to avoid that conclusion. Well, maybe that's possible, but it makes a lot more sense to me to, uh, to think that there was already some kind of tension between Paul and the Galatians, and that, and that the Galatians viewed Paul uh, in such a way that, that uh, you know, some sort of hostile kind of uh, way of thinking because of something Paul had said to them. Moreover, the phrase in verse 12, is most naturally understood as a response to a remark by the Galatians. In fact, Burton uh, paraphrases that by saying, you are correct that you didn't wrong me. I, I really think that's the most natural way of understanding that phrase. You're correct, you didn't wrong me. I'm, I'm not claiming that. It, it seems to be some kind of response to uh, uh, something the Galatians must have said. Yet, having said all that, <clears throat> I have to recognize that in verse 12, uh, become as you are, become as I am, even as I became is implied here, agonomine, I think, you know, this is part of what's going on here, uh, I became as you, that implied agonomine in verse 12, which seems to refer to Paul's Gentile ministry. Um, plus the explicit reference in verse 13 about when he was with them, uh, suggests that the clause also points to the initial evangelization of the Galatians. Uh, so that you could read it in, in a way like this. At that time, when I first came to you, even though I was not a Judaizer, but had rather become like you, you in turn, far from wronging me, received me very well. So you see that other way of looking at it, not as a response to something, but as just looking back at that first visit and saying, you know, I became as you, I treated you as, a, as a, you know, I was a Gentile to the Gentiles. 
And uh, when I came to you with that message, you treated me well. You didn't wrong, do me any wrong. Uh, so why should we think that now this is a problem? And finally, in verses 17 to 20, you have uh, this uh, element that I have called right and wrong motivation. Uh, sorting out the meaning of this passage is uh, really quite a task. Um, I think, if possible, you have to try to maintain the same meaning for the verb zelal, uh, and that's not easy to do. If you try to translate this, it's, uh, it's kind of difficult. Uh, Lightfoot uses the English to pay court to someone, pay court to someone, um, and he tries to keep that meaning throughout that whole argumentation. Also, you might uh, do something like take an interest in, take an interest in. The problem is that you cannot change it to the passive very, very smoothly, and there's a passive in the middle of, uh, of, the, of the passage. In any case, um, in verse 17, Paul uncovers the real reason why the Galatians have changed, namely flattery. And that comes up again in chapter 6. Uh, but he warns them that the Judaizers have the wrong motives. They are paying attention to you. Why? So that they can shut up you are from us, and thus they will be the exclusive objects of your interest. Verse 18, however, brings in a qualification. He says there's nothing wrong in the Galatians wishing to receive attention. He's not, uh, uh, you know, chiding them for that. And it is proper to do that all the time, not just when, um, when they cannot receive that kind of attention from him when he's absent. However, that way of looking at it, the way that I have just described, is a little bit pro problematic because it leaves the verse hanging. Uh, verse 19 seems to continue the sentence. And perhaps it's possible to take verse 18 as a reference to Paul's own desire to receive the attention of the Galatians. And that's the way that Lightfoot uh, deals with it. Burton tries to take a position somewhere between those two. He says that uh, Paul's own interest in the Galatians is good. And it continues even during it continues even during his absence, and that fact is then proven by verse 19. And in the end, I think I probably go with that way of looking at, at the material. The other appeal is to the testimony of the Torah, <clears throat> and um, you know I did have sort of something of an axe to grind when I said earlier that that uh, the argument <clears throat> had concluded <clears throat> in chapter four, verse seven. I, I'll have to confess that part of what's behind that is the question of whether the uh, story of the allegory of Hagar and Sarah is some kind of scriptural proof for Paul. And, and my approach here is that that's not exactly what's going on here. Uh, Paul's argument is complete. He's not necessarily presenting this as, as proof or demonstration of his doctrine. Uh, however, and I, I'm, I'm very concerned that you don't uh, misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not suggesting that the paragraph is unimportant. In, in spite of the sarcasm of verse 21, you know, tell me, you who are under the, the law, want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? A bit of sarcasm there. In spite of that, um, don't, don't uh, infer that Paul doesn't really mean what he's saying. He does. In fact, we may even agree that in, in one sense, it is a crowning argument, because there's real power in it. But I, I would want to insist that the story of Hagar and Sarah is not the basis for his view of justification. 
Let me just mention a couple of things in connection with this uh, passage. One is the, uh, the debate about whether this allegory or typology. You know, this controversy goes back to the early church. Longenecker and others have argued that this is really allegory. <coughs> um, and some people say, you know, well, look, he says allegorel. So how can you deny that it's an allegory? Well, but, you know, when we use the term allegory today and allegorization, we cannot assume that uh, it, it means the same for Paul. I mean, the verb allegoreo had a broader use, and uh, it could be, you know, some sort of comparison or whatever, and not have some of the uh, theologically charged um, baggage that we often associate with it. If you decide we have allegory here, you would have to recognize that it is the only place in Paul where, you, where we have a sustained allegory. And you see, um, that, that alone ought to make you re-ask the question, have we interpreted it correctly? It is better, as most scholars have done, to, um, to call this typology. Uh, the reason being that for many people the term allegory in, implies a, a denigrating of history. And Paul really says nothing that would indicate that he doesn't take the historical element seriously. And so people prefer typology because that is supposed to leave uh, history intact and then you draw some other inferences. But you see, this term is also a little ambiguous. Um, and. Um, you know, Paul Jewett had an article in the Westminster Journal decades ago in which he expressed a little bit of annoyance at the way that people say, oh, no, it's not allegory, it's typology. But then when you really look at it carefully, you, you don't see a really substantive difference in the way uh, people deal with those two uh, terms. I do think that uh, the crucial thing is this. Paul sees certain patterns in God's dealings with his people. I think that's what's going on here. If you want to call it typology, that's fine. But, um, you know, people mean different things by typology. I simply prefer to say, hey, Paul looks back at Genesis, and not only Genesis, and he can tell that God deals with his people in, in certain ways, and you can see certain patterns, certain distinctive features. And the Hager story reveals features of divine work which happen to be parallel to those in effect now. I think that's all he's saying. And the primary feature is, well, the next item in, uh, in the uh, outline, uh, the uh, difference between kata sarka and kata pneuma. In, in trying to identify the main point of the passage, the key has to be that distinction, kata sarka and kata pneuma, which is um, explicit, of course, in verse 29. But just as then the one who was born katasarka persecuted the one born katapneuma, so also now. Now the same contrast had already been mentioned, had been already uh, been already formulated in verse um, 23. Um, when he says that the one was born of the slave girl Katasarka and the other one of the um, uh, free woman, the Epangelias. 
the other contrast between Sarx and the Pangalia, but obviously you're talking about the same thing because he has already said in chapter 3, verse 14, that uh, you, you're talking about the spirit of promise or the promise of the spirit. However, I mean, those two things are inseparable. This is fundamentally the distinction between natural and supernatural. That's really what you're talking about. Slavery and freedom, persecutor and persecuted. And the significance of the passage becomes especially clear by the way it is developed in the very heart of the Epistle to the Romans. You know that chapters 9 through 11 that so uh, often are regarded as, a, as a, some kind of a parenthesis in the letter. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. There you're dealing with, with the very heart of the letter. It, 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 the most crucial question that Paul is having to deal with in response to the objections uh, thrown at him and his, and his message. Something that he has been anticipating from the very beginning in chapter 2 when he speaks about uh, uh, the true Jew is not the one who, who uh, has a mark in the outward flesh, but the one who is circumcised in the heart. Or in chapter 4, the true son of Abraham is the one who follows in the footsteps of his faith, whether circumcised or uncircumcised. And then by the time you get to chapter 9, he now hits that issue um, really uh, uh, straight up because he has just at the end of chapter 8 made these wonderful statements about, you know, who can separate us from the love of God? And the Jew would say, but Paul, if you're right, God has already, you know, disqualified himself. He has rejected his people. He has forgotten his word. And so uh, in chapter 9, verse, uh, verses 5 and 6 and so on, you know, as he's moving into this, this whole discussion, he says, has then God's word failed? Now, you see, Paul doesn't come up with that out of the blue. This is what he's been accused of all this time, uh, that his message nullifies the, the Old Testament, destroys the law, makes God a liar. And the way he responds to it is by talking about Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, because why? Not all Israel is Israel. And it is not a katasarka relationship that counts, but it is the promise. And the fact that it is not of him who runs, because that's a katasarka kind of thing, but of him who wills. Uh, or, 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 that is God who, who, uh, who gives uh, the grace and who gives the power and who chooses. So um, here again, you see, um, I think Paul had made a little comment and put it aside in his filing cards. And Okay, I have to develop this. And uh, he did in Romans uh, 9 to 11. Okay, finally we come to the third major part of the uh, epistle, <coughs> Paul's commands, <coughs> and I think I you know, commented on the fact that um, this, this heading is, is kind of pushing a little bit, partly to, um, to have a certain degree of um, symmetry in, in the three headings, you know, Paul's uh, apostleship, you know, Paul's, uh, uh, how to put it before the... Um, <clears throat> yeah, Paul's apostleship in uh, 1 to 11, and then um, Paul's gospel, right, of course, in, um, in, in its theological development. And now, for symmetry, Paul's commands, but there's more than just symmetry there. Uh, I'm trying to make a point, uh, and probably overstating it by, by using this as the heading, but, but 
what I'm trying to get at, as you know, is that after having said all these apparently negative things about the law, now he turns around and he lays down the law himself. He starts giving commands. He, he expects people to obey certain kinds of precepts. <clears throat> I think uh, a good rationale for the heading is the very way in which uh, Paul <coughs> expresses the idea in chapter 5, verse 2. Ide, ide ego paulos lego humin. There is a certain solemnity about that that reflects his apostolic authority. And uh, Paul is now taking a somewhat different tack now and saying, all right, you better listen to what I have to say and do it. Verse 1, you know, is one of those bridge passages that you could either take as the last statement of, of the previous section or the first statement of the new section, and there's no point in, in, um, in getting too bothered about that. But uh, there are three matters. Uh, one has to do specifically with the circumcision. And um, in terms of the, the way that passage is structured, uh, you know, in talking about the value of circumcision, verses 2 through 6, it's important to appreciate that um, verse 3 supports or explains probably both ideas, supports and explains, verse 2. And then verses 5 and 6 support verse 4. It is very plain that you have a, a parallel structure. Uh, you make a statement in 2, which is then supported and expanded in 3. Then a second statement in verse 4, supported and expanded in verses 5 and, and 6. And I have these two matters. One, uh, a legal obligation, verse 3. This I, I talked about before briefly because it is often said that Paul misunderstood rabbinic Judaism in that Judaism did not demand perfect fulfillment for salvation. And, uh, and my point was, you recall that Paul isn't here trying to represent mainstream Judaism by these words. Quite the contrary. He is protesting. You know, he, he bears witness, he says, to the fatal relaxation of the divine demands in his contemporary Judaism. For a Gentile, for a Gentile, in the situation that is being comp contemplated here, namely to submit to circumcision, to do that was a commitment to seek justification by obedience to the law. And if you're going to go in that route, you better understand what you're getting into. <clears throat> you are a debtor to the whole law. So the argument is quite parallel to uh, James 2, verses 10 and following. Um, Whoever keeps the whole law but uh, fails in one has become guilty of everything. So the argument is that one who places confidence in his own works uh, needs to understand that God demands perfection. There's really no uh, alternative. <clears throat> then this other matter of operative faith. Paul is saying here that in contrast to those who submit to circumcision and seek to be justified by works and therefore place themselves outside the gracious reach of Christ because you, know, you have fallen from grace if you do that. In contrast to that, he says, we, we await the hope of righteousness. That expression alone is intended to distinguish the true Christian spirit. And I think it does that because it emphasizes the element of trust. 
we wait for the hope of righteousness. But what makes this hope truly distinctive is its twofold character. It is a hope pneumati by the Spirit and it is ekpisteo.